Blog Talk Radio. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. I am your voice. So to every parent, who dreams for their child, and every child who dreams for their future. I say these words to you tonight. I am with you, I will fight for you, and I will win for you. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities, and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you, and good night. I love you.
What a song. What a song. Happy Thursday, everybody. Thank you for tuning into the Rory Sauter Show. I'm Rory Sauter, your host. It is great to be back with all of you. I have missed you all since Tuesday. We had a fantastic show on Tuesday and Monday. Everything you could want in a show. So many things addressed and established. Perfect flow, great rhythm, and uh, we never run out of things to talk about. The dialogue is perfecto. Like I do every episode, I want to thank my guests, my co-hosts, my audience and sponsors. You are all incredible. The show is listened to in 25 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms. And everybody, if you miss any past clips, past episodes, or any 24-7 breaking news coverage, visit my media site, the next N-E-X, Gen, G-E-N-U-S-A.com. And also remember, in a month, I will be releasing the new 24-7 network with my other two business partners. We have so much planned for it. Many notable people will be doing their own shows, big names, uh, here in our country, obviously, and as well as overseas. Um, hosts from all over the world. Like I said, my good friend, America's toughest sheriff, Joe Arpaio, will be the face of the network, as well as the director of Jihad Watch, Robert Spencer. So two big guys that we're very excited to have a part of our team. Um, and I just can't wait. I can't wait to share it with all of you. This is something, I, you know, we've been working on for a while. So the fact that it's finally, you know, coming out and, and you know, being released is, is such a um, – just, just a huge, just such a great feeling. It's the best feeling, you know, working so hard for it, and now it's finally here. Uh, and as I said, you know, uh, next week, uh, a lot more details, a lot more announcements in regards to the network that I will share with all of you. Uh, yeah, so here we are. Big day, big day in the media today, big day yesterday. Um, I hope everybody is looking forward to the weekend. Always a huge relief when Friday approaches. You know, um, I know I am. It's been a long week, that's for sure. Uh, I do want to welcome to the show founder of College Republicans United, founder of Republicans United, and currently the leader of Nationalists United, Kevin DeKuyper. Kevin. I'm doing very well, Rory. I hope you are, too. I'm very pumped for this show. It's going to be great. Thanks, buddy. Well, I'm excited, too. Let's also welcome to the show director, lobbyist, and political activist, Gianni Rodriguez Perez. What's up, buddy? How are you, Rory? I'm glad to be on. Well, glad to have you here, my friend. Uh, definitely a big show ahead of us. I would also like to welcome to the program Director of Communications for Donald Trump's North Carolina campaign lobbyist and DC insider and White House liaison, W. Kirk Bell. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Rory. Warren, Rory Souter. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, man. Well, I'm glad to have you a part of the show. And, you know, here in a little while, um, after the first guest comes on, I want to uh, get, obviously, talk to you about your career and stuff and talk to you about, uh, you know, all the different things you've been through in life. Because you've had quite the life. It's a very impressive resume. So if you stick around for a while, uh, I would love to talk about that. Um, but uh, opening segment, I'm hoping you can join us. Kirk, are you still there? 
Yep, yep, absolutely. Yep. Perfect, my friend. Well, I'm looking forward to it. All right, everybody. So let, let's get into the opening segment, everybody. This whole social justice stuff, I mean, it's, it's getting out of hand. And today it was just announced that Jay-Z is signing a huge deal, or he actually did officially sign, with the NFL, and he's bringing the social justice bullshit, excuse my language, with him. This is the reason people have been protesting the NFL for, so many, for the last three years. It's because of the social justice crap, the kneeling, you know, the bringing your problems on the field, disrespecting our vets, you know, attention-seeking, all this negative behavior that doesn't stop. And let's face it, if these players really cared about the black community, they'd be in there, you know, constantly giving money, helping out, and, you know, the people that actually help, the players that actually help, they don't feel like they need to kneel on the field. You know, a lot of these kneelers are just attention-seeking and basically pissed off at the president. A lot of this is a slap is a slap in the face to the president, you know, that they want to disrespect him as much as possible. And, uh, you know, it's this whole mentality of they hate the white man. I mean, that keeps going around like the white man is the enemy. You know, it's, it's a really dangerous mentality, and we're, we're seeing this more and more. And, you know, they, they want to, you know, they say supposedly they're, they're kneeling because of, white cops killing black kids. You know, what they fail to mention, though, is majority of the people they're protesting, like Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, all these different people, you know, Eric, uh, Eric, I forget the guy's name, Eric something. Uh, but these guys, these, these people they're making examples out of, you know, were in the wrong. They were the ones that attacked the police officer, and the police officer was only defending himself. And what, what do the black community do? They paint the white cop as the enemy. They, they take no accountability. They, they play like the black guy's the victim, even though he was terrorizing people. All these situations. You saw what Trayvon Martin did. He attacked George Zimmerman. And George Zimmerman basically, George Zimmerman may have went too far, but nonetheless, George Zimmerman, George Zimmerman was still defending himself. You know, look at the Michael Brown situation. Stealing cigarettes and shoving a market store owner and then he comes up to a cop and tries to posture at the cop and grab the cop's gun. And this, these are the people that the NFL is trying to protest. Come on. You know, there's a big difference between police brutality and provoking the situation and causing yourself to get shot or get attacked by the police. You know, a lot of, a lot of these people, especially in some of these neighborhoods, they are out of control, and the cops are scared for their lives, and the cops can't even do their job properly these days because of all of this fake outrage. It's fake. The real problem is the black-on-black crime. It's the constant violence in the black community that's ignored by the Democratic Party and by these players and by people like Jay-Z. They don't want to acknowledge it. People like Kanye acknowledge it, though. And you know, this. Just think about it, though. You've got that less than 1% chance a racist cop goes after some black suspect. Most cops are good, let's face it. You know, sure, like just like any profession, any industry, you're always going to have a few assholes. I mean, that's life, though. But what I'm saying is 
It's sending the wrong message, going back to what's going on with this NFL. Kaepernick started something that sunk the NFL ratings by like 30 to 40%. So many people have turned it off, never watching it again for the principle of the matter that they disrespected the military, they disrespected our country. You know, they, and it's hypocritical. Think about it. They claim oppression. They claim all this nonsense, but they're making millions of dollars in our country. They are making millions of dollars. They're living the 1% life, and they're not addressing the real problem, which is black-on-black crime. Don't forget, and this isn't a knock or, or any insult towards black community. It's just a fact. They make up, they, they make up 12% of the population, and they commit over 50% of the crimes. You know, I have many black friends. I, I, have, you know, I have no issue with color. I don't see color. But when you have a community, community that's, you know, making up 12% of, of the population and committing over 50% of the crimes, there's a problem. I mean, there is an issue. And the Democrats don't help the situation. All they're doing is race baiting and encouraging more divisiveness. And I don't get why the white, you know, I mean, it, racism exists no matter where you go. But I'm tired of seeing, especially lately, people are just going after white people because they're white. It, it, it really feels like some white people have to walk around like they're a black person in the 60s. It, it's to that level and extent. I mean, they, you know, let's face it. The left is creating a whole narrative and divisive situation that is taking us back, I mean, years and years to a, to a time we don't want to relive again. So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really nervous about this because what's going to happen, you know, this is one example with the NFL, but among many other categories of social justice, you know, the fake, the fake narrative is, is running the show. But, for instance, with this whole NFL thing, Jay-Z is going to bring social justice into the NFL. They're going to talk about – and here's another problem. Think about CNN. Think about MSNBC. They create, create all these fake narratives with racism hoaxes, race baiting, uh, fake, you know, fake police attacks, all this stuff. And then the NFL is going to use this fake stuff to try to, you know, for their platform. Let's face it. They're all going to collaborate together. This is what they do. They're all in bed together. This is, this is facts. And I'm terrified of, because I like football. The reason I watch football is to get away from politics. I want to enjoy a sport. I don't give a shit what these players' political beliefs are. More power to them, whatever they want to believe. But keep that shit off the field. Excuse my language. Excuse my French. But I'm just making a point here. Keep it off the field. Do it in your own time. You want to protest? Go film yourself with a camera and put it on your Twitter or Instagram in your house or in your backyard. Not on the football field. This is, this is our country. This is the USA. You play in it. You work in it. You respect it. It's very simple. We're not asking for a lot. And really, really, though, everybody, get the facts straight. You know, and here's another problem. Liberals always want to paint cops as the bad guys, but who's the first person they call when, they, when they're in trouble? Or they're, they're, you know, they call the cops. So it's the biggest hypocrisy on the face of the earth. And think about all this other fake social justice that's going on. We have George Washington University students signing fake petitions to remove oppressive white man from the crosswalk signal. Yes, people, that's what we're dealing with with the social justice warriors now. 
the white the white symbol at the crosswalk is racist and hateful. Yes, we're dealing with that now. I mean, I I keep saying that just when, just when I thought I'd seen it all, oh my God, this is more and more and more keeps coming out. That's crazier and crazier. It's like when does it end? It's like, yeah, and you got all these shows now, like the Oscars, ESPN, you know, any any show you turn on, they're they're playing, especially the mainstream media, social justice warrior, playing into the liberal narrative, bringing up Trump. I mean, come on, Jesus Christ! I will say this is. This is a scary, a scary situation. It really is. Uh, I want to play this real quick, this clip uh, describing this whole Jay-Z thing. Uh, one, one Time now for our seen and unseen segment where we expose the big cultural stories of the day. The NFL joins forces with a music giant, and Bernie Sanders pairs off with Cardi B. <laughs> Joining us now with all the details is Raymond Arroyo, Fox News contributor. Raymond, tell us about this unbelievable press conference that took place today announcing a new partnership between the NFL and Jay-Z. Well, Jesse, the Kaepernick kneeling protest during the national anthem enraged NFL fans while inspiring some of the NFL players. Now, to channel the player protest over what they described as police brutality on this night of all nights, the NFL committed $89 million to something called Inspire Change. That's their social justice program. Well, today, Roger Goodell appeared with the man headlining that effort for the NFL, Jay-Z. This partnership, in addition to the entertainment aspect and bringing football and music together, is going to help us make even greater change. And, and we call it protest to progress, right? We need to make progress as communities. Just having a place where we can have these conversations where it's like, oh, things are going on wrong in the country. You know, people are dying in these neighborhoods. Okay, where do we go? Again, I want everyone, everyone, yeah, it's a natural emotion to be upset. But where do we go now? Where are we going to take it? What are we going to do? How do we fix it? The idea here, Jesse, is to use music and social activism to change society. And Jay-Z, during the presser, identified police brutality as the target of their efforts. Now, this is the guy who rapped this, incidentally. Jay-Z turned down the NFL when they asked him to perform at the Super Bowl, Jesse. And, and, and now they're embracing him because it's a huge platform and no doubt worth millions and millions of dollars. And like that, Jay-Z said he's willing to work with people whom he disagrees with politically. Now, that's not a bad thing. That I'll commend him for. But let's not lose sight of what the NFL is. It's football. Right. I'm quite certain these fans are not paying these high prices to protest cops, particularly with what you covered earlier tonight in Philadelphia. I think that's the last thing on the minds of NFL fans, but that they mean, the NFL, to embrace Jay-Z's vision 
of social justice. Now, this is a guy who sold drugs. He stabbed his brother in the face. Still, this partnership is being built as a way to unify America. But as memory serves, Jay-Z had trouble unifying with his sister-in-law, Solange Knowles. As soon as the doors close, Beyonce's sister Solange whips her attention to B's husband, Jay-Z, seemingly shouting at him, definitely punching and kicking him, and finally smacking him with her purse. <laughs> okay. Um, I, this is my first Raymond Arroyo segment, so I'm at a loss for words here. I, I, I am too. I, 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 I would say this, Raymond. Yeah. It seems like big organizations like the NFL or like mm -hmm. Nike is doing with Kaepernick they're bringing on these social justice liaisons right. to help them navigate through tender issues, racial issues, um, yeah. things like that that might give these big organizations problems. And if you bring a guy in with street cred or with guys with his ear to the street right. or that has, you know, great credibility in the black community, that could kind of um, uh, cushion any sort of negative press that that organization Face. Jesse, there's no doubt. Look, they're trying to buy cred in the community, and that's what the NFL is up to here. But remember, Jay-Z is going to have creative control over who sings at the Super Bowl, no. who's a part of NFL productions. This is a major problem. Wait, he gets we'll to pick the Super Bowl out. halftime show? Yes, he does. What? Yes. <laughs> I don't think this is quite I bet what Beyonce NFL singing next year. <laughs> okay. We'll check in on Bernie and Cardi another time. All Thank right. you, Jesse. Thank you very much, Raymond. I appreciate it. Unbelievable. I mean, it's disgraceful, seriously. Um, Gianni, let's start with you. <laughs> you know, this is, I mean, this is one of the things that I like to talk about a lot, man. I mean, this guy, Jay-Z, I mean, I don't know what happened in him. He, you know, he used to be a person, he made the song famously called Black Republican. And, you know, he was talking about working hard and so forth. But somehow he just, like, you know, started catering to the globalists. And, I mean, he, I saw a post on Facebook today where he said, you know, why, do, why, why are white men so privileged? Why do they, I'm like, dude, you're a fucking billionaire. You are a yeah. billionaire. You, I, I'm just like, dude, you're a billionaire. You have all this money. You and your wife has all this money combined. You have jets. You have over ten houses. I mean, what do you mean, white men? Why white men are so privileged? What do you mean by that? But I think what we have to really get down to is what is this all about? Because none of this stuff started happening before Trump. When Trump got in office, you saw low black unemployment. You saw the the prison reform first step bill. You saw these things that were coming out that were actually Positive, positive, positively impacting the black community. And what they're trying to do is say, what could we do to affect the masses? I'm a person who is very, I study hip hop a lot. So I understand that Jay-Z is kind of like the ringleader for the hip hop now. Kind of like Frank Sinatra was of culture back in the 40s and 50s. And you saw how JFK used him in order to get a certain uh, outcome. And that is what right. the Democrats are in, 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 you know, lobbyists and corporate are doing now they see that jay-z is like the first billionaire in hip-hop what is what is running the culture right now it's hip-hop just like back in the 50s and 60s it was jazz music that was running the culture which is why frank sinatra was like the guy that you know jfk you know catered to and that's what's going on now with jay-z hip-hop is running the culture now and jay-z is like the leader of it. he's the first black he's the first billionaire in hip-hop ever 
I mean, come on. This isn't some, some little, uh, little guy here that we're dealing with. So I think what's going on is that the Democrats see that uh, black people are waking up to the games that the Democratic plantation is playing. Because if you look directly and look, this is not going to be politically correct. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. If you look directly in race and IQ, IQ and race, a lot of people don't like to talk about it because it's not politically correct. But if you look directly in race and IQ, you will see that Africans, you know, have this uh, hunter and gathering culture. And I'm a, you know, I'm black, I'm Puerto Rican, so I can talk about it. They have this hunter and gathering culture. So that's the culture that we grew up with. We didn't grow up with the, you know, other stuff that we learned in America. Once we got here to America, we were, ex- we were exposed to a certain way of life. And what's going on now is with Donald Trump, he's saying, listen, you can have jobs. You don't have to receive welfare. You can get jobs. You can have careers. You can have great families. You don't, you don't, you don't have to sell drugs. And all this stuff is coming out, and that is what the Democrats are waiting on. The Democrats want to dumb black people down like they did with Obama. Even yep. you know, Louis Farrakhan, as crazy as he is. He even admitted that Obama was used to numb black people back to sleep because black people stopped voting for a while. But if you see a black president, you're going to be like, oh, my God, like this is glorious. We love this. And they started voting, and he gave the utopia vision. And what happened is Obama started to numb black people back to sleep. And then Trump is saying, listen, what the hell do you have to lose? Baltimore is a shithole. Your city's a shithole. Black-on-black crime is – the main thing, not white supremacy, not not. I believe you know. Of course, we know police brutality exists, but it's not a racial thing. Here's the thing: yeah. all this stuff that they're putting in our face is to keep us sleep, to keep us down. But when Trump is saying, "Listen, what the hell do you have to lose with anything?" He's saying, "Listen, I'm giving you a culture that will drastically change." Your culture, because the black African-Americans has a strong cultural problem right now. It is a strong cultural problem. It's not politically correct, but it's a strong cultural problem, and we have to fix in our own communities. Why is it that, that you know, in places like Baltimore, you know, these people, most of the students are illiterate. They're doing terrible in math. They're doing terrible in reading. What is this that's going on? It's because the Democratic Party and the Democratic plantation, in some, in some cases, some Republicans didn't care at the time about it. But the Democratic plantation is providing us a slave mentality, which is what? You don't need to know how to read. You know, the white man is in control. You don't need to know that. It's all right. Guess what? They're against you. You know, I feed you. I give you clothes. I'll give you free health care. I'll give you all this stuff. And that is what's going on. And Trump is waking the, waking the, 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 sleeping, the sleeping beast up. And that's what's going on with Jay-Z. They want to get someone that's high, like Jay-Z and Cardi B. And they're saying, all right, we got to use them to bring back in. Bring them back in because we don't know what the hell is going on right now with the black unemployment, with the with the the the, the first step act and all this stuff. We have to use high powered people in order to get a certain result. So I believe that that is what it's all about. It's all about money. It's all about keeping black people on the democratic uh, plantation, and that's what it's all about. I, I if Jay Z wants to help with like like the other guest, uh, the, the the person on the show said. Uh, if he wants to help, I commend him for that with people he disagree with. But we obviously know that it's not what he means by that. It's not like Kanye where he's a free thinker and he'll work with anybody. This is literally saying, all right, I'm going to take this social justice bullcrap and I'm going to introduce it. Like me as a black person, I'm a black cat slash Hispanic person, but you know, I look black. But when I'm walking down the street, 
I'm not looking behind me seeing that some big, big bad white cop is going to come and beat me up. I don't even have a parking ticket. That's how clean my record is. I don't yeah. have a parking ticket. I've never been to jail. I, know, I don't have any of this stuff. So I don't get right. what they mean by, you know, this, black people are always, you know, worried and we're always worried about, you know, being black, walking while black, shopping while black, being, you know, discriminated. I don't know what this is about. It's about your actions. And it's about what you do. It's the choices that you make that get you to the places that get you. And that is what Trump was trying to say. Listen, you have nothing to lose. Here's a culture that I'm trying to give to you and your people right. that's going to help you out. And that's what I agree with. No, I agree. No, absolutely. Well said. Uh, Kevin, go ahead. Oh, yes. And it's no mistake that they use this word racism in order to completely put it on, on white people, that it's entirely white people that are the, that are the racist ones. It's just straight out of culture, cultural Marxism, of course. And it, it's probably the most racist word in existence to, to consider only white people could be racist. And, and we'll discuss why, because you think about – uh, who is being attacked in all these different crimes throughout the country? It, it, you know, it's not – you go to any inner city, any, you know, downtown district or ghetto kind of area, you see bars on the windows, and it's just completely run down. I mean, these aren't white people doing any of this. Uh, you don't have bars on the windows because a bunch of white people are breaking in and just terrorizing the neighborhood. I mean, you don't see white people and MS-13 and all these different gangs of, you know, all these different cultures. Uh, that's just not the case, and, and we have just tens of thousands of different gangs throughout the country, and uh, Donald Trump's done a tremendous job at uh, you know taking down so many of them. And uh, this is really much of the core of the issue here is that it you know it turns out that criminals fear cops. Criminals want to kill cops and get rid of cops and disable our police and judicial system. Uh, you know it's it's not the law-abiding American citizen that relies on cops in order for their lives to turn out okay so they're not terrorized by these gangs or these random acts of violence against them. They, they want to live in beautiful communities with, with order and some structure that you know, keeps them safe. And, that, of course, it's a you know, very Republican position in order to want such law and order and a, a very constructive environment. But you know, as you see through the media, especially this rap community, they encourage, they romanticize. I mean, they, they love this concept of, of just down with the police. And uh, it, it was very well founded on uh, in the hip-hop culture, uh, which is you know, kind of the, the roots of rap. Uh, it, it founded from this group called N-Words with Attitude. And they had a, an album called that just absolutely took off and made them famous. And that was F the police. And, you know, it romanticized killing police officers. And it just, it blew up and was huge and became like kind of the core center of this, uh, you know, uh, gangster rap uh, community. And it, it just keeps taking off from there and escalating, of course. And it's, it's no, you know, coincidence. It's no, um, it, you could totally understand why the NFL would want to sit in America's face and all of our traditional and conservative values by having someone like Jay-Z, who's, as Gianni said, much of the ringleader of this uh, rap community. He's the most successful, you know, most privileged person in America, <laughs> in this you know, rap community especially, and, you know, trying to take down our, our culture and our traditions. And, uh, of course, you have the NFL are saying, well, yeah, we, you know, we, we want to change things. We want to make sure that these, uh, you know, particularly Republicans, I would imagine, are, are watching football. You know, we're trying to change their mind. We're trying to, like, ease them into this, this new culture, this new world order culture that uh, Jay-Z is very much all about. 
And uh, I think it's, it's absolutely disgusting, particularly that uh, it's a, a big conspiracy. It's a big gaslighting, social justice, cultural Marxist phenomenon. And I, I think that uh, Republicans should, should wake up and try to start fighting the culture war uh, a lot stronger, a lot harder than they have been before. You know, maybe you shouldn't be watching football. Maybe you should spend more time with your families and, you know, having a hobby, learning skills, you know, doing things more productive instead of giving your money to people that hate you and want your values and traditions and, you know, future generations' prosperity to be absolutely uh, kaput. And, you know, and that's not just like the NFL. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wide-ranging phenomenon of you have the Netflix, the Hulus, all this cable TV. I mean, we even have, uh, in my opinion, the only person worth watching on cable TV is, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson on Fox News. But he was suspended for saying that white supremacy narrative is, is a hoax. And, you know, he's being punished by, by the powers that, you know, the Murdochs that control the, the network um, don't want him to, to speak out. In much the same manner, we had Judge, Judge Janine Pirro uh, say that the Quran and uh, radical Islamicism is not compatible with uh, America and our, our Constitution and you know, our founding traditions. Uh, she was punished as well, and she's you know, been a lot more quiet about things since then. And it's, it's really a shame. So I really think that uh, we ought to fight the culture war. We've got to find our way around how we've been um, you know, giving money to the enemy instead you know, give money more to ourselves, and we got to realize as well that, uh, you know, maybe it isn't that totally positive that the economy is doing so well when you have all these, you know, all these massive corporations. I mean, they're they're the ones that are doing especially well. Uh, it's not necessarily the mom and pop shops; they're getting taken down by, you know, groups like Amazon, who's paying no taxes whatsoever. They're out competing everybody. And they're absolutely, you know, getting subsidies and lobbying and special privileges from the government that are making them, you know, overcompete. And um, I, I really think we should be empowering our citizens in order to do what's best for, you know, themselves and small business and flourishing that way. But instead, we have a very oligarchical uh, enterprise taking place right now, and it's it's manifesting all over the place, and it's changing our culture, and it's really uh, making us lose our country uh, by the day. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Very well said. Kirk, what are your thoughts? Um, I don't know. I've I I think we're in a good place, you know, if you if you look at the Trump team and I'm looking at per, the perspective of 2020, I'm a campaign guy and I think that there are a lot of positive things that we have going into the next 2 years. Um I believe that, you know, every time you have a Democrat debate, the American public has a chance to see exactly who these people are. And when you when it becomes binary, I think that puts us in an even better position. The interesting thing recently is the left liberals trying to talk down the economy, trying to claim that we're heading for a recession and it's not true. The numbers will continue to, to GDP will continue to stay strong. Um, we do need a Fed rate cut. We need a, a, a couple actually uh, additional Fed rate cuts. But, but I think overall, I think we are moving into a, a good period now for, for the Trump team. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. 
No, it's, it's very true. Uh, let's go to AJ, AJ in Houston. Go ahead. I know you have some thoughts. AJ in Houston. AJ, are you there? AJ? Big town, what's going on? Oh, hey, man, how are you? Man, I tell you what, all what we've been watching, it's been unbelievable. Look at this mess they got, and Trump just did his rally tonight. And what we what we seeing is the Democrat Party has no options of how to fix the mess that Barack Obama left us. What Barack Obama's left us is what we're going through right now. You remember the Cambridge situation? Look at what they did to the police in Philadelphia. These people are, these men and women out there trying to help save the community and them idiots out there throwing stuff at them like they did in New York. That is appalling. Well, Barack Obama said the police acted stupidly. Ever since he said that, I don't care what nobody say, they had a target on their back. He invited Black Lives Matter to the White House, Antifa. They showed up. I mean, they blaming Donald Trump. I ain't never. Now, Mr. Roy, tell me, what has Donald Trump said to be so racist to these idiots out here? His rhetoric is not rhetoric. It's the truth, and they can't stand the truth. That's, I, I listened to this man tonight. I mean, the crowd was unbelievable in, in uh, New Hampshire. It was unbelievable. Nothing like the Democrats. Nothing. N- they so flat, dull. You're a racist. I'm a racist. Everybody racist. Black and white. Da 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 da. Trump came out and just boosted everybody up. We together. You 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 you. Not me me me. Like Obama did. I mean, it was great to hear that. And this media, this sorry media. Why are they even called the media? This is a joke because the truth told, the reason these people going off the way they're going off is because of this sorry media that's kissed Obama butt for eight years, letting it off the hook. We got more evidence on them crooks. They finally calling Obama name out with the Russia collusion. Hillary cans in the cookie jar, we're finding out more and more and more. I mean, the media don't want to hear it. They don't want any time you say his name. You don't want. They don't want to hear nothing about it. But the people are tired of being called names that they don't deserve. And the real name callers, them the people that are really what they are. The Democrat Party is the most racist people we ever seen. And I'm telling all blacks, whites, green and red, if you happen to vote for this party. Well, then you would love to go to Venezuela's, Iran, Syria, all them to live that way. Well, I'm like Donald Trump. All these liberals, why don't y'all just move? I don't care if you're born here. Why don't you move? Because y'all ain't doing nothing to help the country after eight years of Obama mess that he left. Just move. We don't care. I don't care if you're born here. We're tired of the rhetoric. You're getting people killed. 
I mean, your rhetoric is getting people killed. The media hiding it, and they blaming the Republicans. And but what gets me is the I know I ramble, but what gets me is the Republicans in the House Senate. They don't say words. Why don't they fight back like Trump do? I'm sick of them. They just quiet. That's how we got Obamacare. They quiet, even though they didn't vote for it. But they didn't. You know, my I'm gonna say some words that I was at a bar. I wish I was at a bar. I mean, they didn't. They not. They act like they scared. We the people out here voting these people in, and they don't want to do their job. I mean, they lost out when they had the House and Senate vote them. They didn't do nothing. So this time, Trump came tonight. We got to bring the Republicans, have it to bring to win the House. Because Trump doing all these executive orders ain't going to do nothing if we don't win the House back. Because if we get another Democrat rat in there, they're going to get rid of everything Trump did. The people in America got to wake up, man. Um, I mean, I, 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 I listen to your guests and everybody. The reason we got laws is for people to follow them. Then we don't need no more laws. We just need people to follow the laws we got and people to enact them. We need judges. Trump talked about the judges that Obama didn't do. Trump got the judges in. We need more judges to act by they and do their jobs, man. We don't need every time a shooting go on. Oh, 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 oh. We need more law change. No. We need to get the sucker that picked up that gun and did the damn don't work. I mean, this is a joke we watch. I'm sorry, man. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm tired of these people. They, they makes me sick. I can't wait to 2020 get here where we can come on and make them more pisser. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. <laughs> no, I hear you. No, I'm with you, man. I know. I, I absolutely agree. Dude. I mean, oh, I what is the? I mean, what is we gonna? The American people, they send back. They they trying to take the stock market down. They we know what they're yeah. doing. They did it under George Bush. Bush didn't have the balls to tell them that they was doing it. Trump told them what they was doing. But, I mean, our economy is great. We are doing well. We if we can get the Democrats out the way, we do extra well. They killing the economy. They want to blame Trump. They're going out these ways to take Trump down. I mean, everybody see the joke what they're doing, but you got the media. We got to shut this media down, man. It's Facebook, Twitter. I lost, I lost followers. I don't even know where they went. Twitter is just ridiculous. That's why I'm on that, though, to fight the liberals on that dirty rat situation. It makes me sick. Facebook, you're losing followers. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, where do they go? Where do they go? If you ain't a liberal, oh, well, I guess you can have a million followers. But, man, I look so on there, man, and I look my uh, Next thing I know, I'm dropping. Well, you know what? We going to stay in their butt. Conservatives, stay in Twitter, stay in Facebook butt. That's why Barack Obama sent the IRS after the Tea Party when we was kicking butt back then. And just too bad the Tea Party just didn't have the goals to fight them suckers like a bad habit. Because most people, they don't want the battle. I understand that. I understand that. And then for the last thing, that's that, that Einstein deal, everybody knows what's going on. The man was murdered. Everybody knows. And the women that's 
testifying now, I, I would tell them, well, guys, y'all better watch out as well because if they didn't want him to talk, they then going to show him want you to talk, and we find out he gets a broken neck, the man 6'2 on a short damn bed. Oh, God, Jesus Christ. What the wrong? Boy, I can go on and on and on, man. No, I, 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 I don't want to hold man. nobody else up. <laughs> right. We'll co- we're going to take a quick commercial, and uh, we will be right back, everybody. Stay with us. TGI Friday's famous sizzling entrees that you know and love, like chicken, shrimp, and cheese, just got even hotter. With new delicious tastes like whiskey, flat iron steak, and the tastiest sizzling street foods. Hurry in. Now starting at only $10. We bring the sizzle like no other. New sizzling entrees starting at $10. TGI Friday, the home of endless apps. Endless apps every night, 9 p.m. to close. She's still the one for you. And Cialis for daily use helps you be ready anytime the moment is right. Cialis is also the only daily ED tablet approved to treat symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision or any allergic reactions like rash, hives, swelling of the lips, tongue, or throat, or difficulty breathing or swallowing, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use and a free 30-tablet trial. Packaging. I'm Ray, and I quit smoking with Chantix. I tried cold turkey. I tried the patch. They didn't work for me. I didn't think anything was going to work for me until I tried Chantix. Chantix, along with support, helps you quit smoking. Chantix reduced my urge to smoke. I needed that to quit. When you try to quit smoking, with or without Chantix, you may have nicotine withdrawal symptoms. Some people had changes in behavior or thinking, aggression, hostility, agitation, depressed mood, or suicidal thoughts or actions with Chantix. Serious side effects may include seizures, new or worse heart or blood vessel problems, sleepwalking, or allergic and skin reactions, which can be life-threatening. Stop Chantix and get help right away if you have any of these. Tell your health care provider if you've had depression or other mental health problems. Decrease alcohol use while taking Chantix. Use caution when driving or operating machinery. The most common side effect is nausea. I can't tell you how good it feels to have smoke behind me. Talk to your doctor about Chantix. And we are back. The Rory Sauter Show, coast to coast, worldwide. Listened to in 25 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms. And everybody, if you miss me past clips, past episodes, or need 24-7 breaking news coverage, visit my media site, dnext, N-E-X, gen, G-E-N, USA.com. Also remember, next month I will be releasing my new 24-7 network, and uh, we will be having many big-name, notable people doing their own shows. And my good friend, America's toughest sheriff, Joe Arpaio, as well as director of Jihad Watch, Robert Spencer, will be the main faces of the network. And I'm so excited to share it with all of you. Um, I do I do want to welcome uh, to the show, I believe we have him on right now, 
a public policy expert, political consultant, lobbyist, and best-selling author, Dr. David Hogberg. Uh, how are you, sir? Welcome to the show. Um, very good. Couple things. My last name is pronounced Hogberg. Um, gotta, I guess I got to talk to my publicist about that. Um, I'm not a lobbyist. Oh, okay. Um, okay I you were just want to let you know, I am not a lobbyist, and uh, I, I don't lobby on on anything. So, <laughs> okay. just to let you know. Okay. Okay. So, your first time on the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us how. Tell us how it all started for you. You know the different chapters you've been through in your life, all that good stuff. Oh, um, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I have a PhD in political science from Iowa, and. Um, I, uh, toward the end of my time there, I decided I really didn't want to be in, in, uh, academia and, uh, ended up working for a, uh, uh, place called the Public Interest Institute, which was kind of Iowa's version of the Heritage Foundation. And, uh, kind of one thing just led to another. I ended up working in, uh, kind of writing for the American Spectator, and that eventually helped me get to, uh, uh, work for some think tanks in Washington, D.C. As I was in D.C., I started developing more and more of an interest in healthcare policy, and that uh, uh, eventually led me to work for the National Center uh, for Public Policy Research. Um, I've since left there, uh, but while I was there, I published a book about Medicare called Medicare's Victims. And um, although I've uh, I've kind of left the think think tank world, I do kind of keep my eye on healthcare policy and write about it uh, every so often. And you know, obviously, you just wrote a new book that is doing pretty well, and and uh, it it specifies the big corruption with our government and the healthcare system. Kind of, kind of explain that a little bit to the audience. Um, well, uh, yeah, the book was um, uh, written, uh, let's see, it pub- was published back in 2015, and, and it is uh, currently available on Amazon, uh, still is. Uh, and, um, yeah, basically the book about Medicare, it was, um, well, I was just always very curious why Medicare was a fairly popular program when you look at public opinion polls and, and uh, you know, because uh, public, uh, you know, government-run health care programs are usually, you know, have all sorts of, of problems with, you know, efficiency and quality and so forth. And um, so I, I basically, I dug into it, and what I found was that, uh, one of the reasons it's popular is that its main constituency uh, has a great deal of political power. Uh, those age 65 to 74 who were, you know, on Medicare, um, they vote at rates higher than just about anyone else. So, you know, politicians are going to make sure that you know Medicare serves their needs, uh, uh, you know, fairly well. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, because they don't want a lot of angry seniors showing up at the the ballot box on uh, on, on ele- or at the voting booth on on election day. Um, however, once you start getting away from from that group onto you know groups that uh, don't have nearly as much political power and and are on Medicare, you oftentimes find a different story. For example, uh, the disabled who, are, who who have access to to Medicare. Uh, they have to endure a two-year waiting period uh, before they can get on Medicare. And at times, uh, you know, some of them are uninsured while they're in that waiting period. Often they're very sick. They can have, they can struggle with medical bills, getting, sometimes getting adequate, struggle with getting adequate health care. 
Um, and, and why is that the case? I mean, why has there been a two-year waiting period for so long on, on Medicare for the disabled, really since the early 70s? And it's primarily because the disabled don't have anywhere near that, that kind of political power, uh, with, at least with regard to Medicare. Uh, you know, they don't vote at rates uh, nearly as high as the age 65 to 74 uh, population. And the groups that lobby on behalf of behalf of the uh, uh, the disabled in Washington are kind of scattered and unfocused because there are like a hundred different programs uh, at the federal level that uh, deal with the the disabled, as opposed to seniors that only have you know two programs that concern them, uh, Medicare and Social Security, which you know makes it easier for groups like the AARP that lobby on behalf of um, seniors to to focus their efforts. So, um, you know, there's basically, you know, Medicare works because, uh, you know, one of its main groups is politically powerful, but you, like I said, you start getting away from, from that group and it's, it, it can be a, a very different story. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, explain the, the, the disaster of, you know, what the Democrats are, are pushing right now with Medicare for all. I mean, it, you know, it, it already has its problems with the people that are on it, and they want to give it to everybody. It's like cattle, well, you know. It's like going to the DMV and waiting around. It's crazy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, Medicare for all. I'll, I'll hand this to the Democrats and those on the political left. They're they're couching their you know their single payer plans, their nationalized health care plans, um, in you know rhetoric that that looks good. You know, calling it Medicare for all. Uh, but but that's about the only credit I'll uh, I'll give them on this. Um, if you kind of want to if you want to see what happens when you put everyone or or most of your population under a national health care program, like say a Medicare for all uh, would do, uh, just go north to Canada or maybe across the pond to England, where uh, you see um, a lot of people who are. Uh, you know, who have serious health care problems, maybe cancer, and they need a heart operation, uh, a knee or hip replacement, and, and, and so forth, uh, they often have to endure long waiting periods for treatment, um, oftentimes months, sometimes years. Um, and, and why is that the case? I mean, why have those waiting times persisted for, for years, despite, you know, numerous stories in the press in, in Canada and um, uh, uh, in, in England, you know, detailing how difficult those, those problems are for, for people who are sick. Well, the sick in general don't have much in the way of political power. Very few people get uh, that sick uh, in, in any given year, and so they don't amount to much at the, at, at, at the ballot box. And, you know, the, the other things that could might affect change, like, you know, political organizing, protesting, that sort of thing, um, you know, they're not going to be doing that, that. You know, they have a serious illness. They have a million things that they need to concern themselves with, and political uh, uh, activities are, are going to be very, very low on the list if, if they're on the list at all. So, um, you know, again, uh, it, it, people who don't have political power under a national health care system are going to lose out. And it's often the sickest because, you know, the sickest just, you know, sick people don't have in general a whole lot of political power. Yeah, no, 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 you're absolutely right. And explain the dangers. Obviously, you know, the, the, the voters know to some degree, especially in our party, you know, the conserv conservatives, but – when you give government power over your health care, 
that's a really dangerous territory. It basically means they have the ultimate and final authority in say over you, and it's 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 scary stuff. <laughs> well, um, I mean, yeah, you know, um, you, you look at something like. Um, well, I, I, I mean, there, there, there are so many uh, things of this sort. Um, I, I, one of the examples I keep coming back to is uh, is England, and um, I'm trying to remember the young infant's name. His first name, I believe, was Charlie, and I can't remember his last name. He needed some sort of genetic treatment. He was he had some very rare disease. And his parents had raised money uh, to, to take him to the U.S. to get this treatment. The treatment was, in fairness, not likely to work, but, you know, he had no chance. He certainly had absolutely no – Charlie Gard, I think, was his name. And he had no chance without it. But basically, the 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 uh, the – he was in a hospital in Britain, and the healthcare system there said, no, you can't take him to America. There's no chance that he's going to live. And the parents, you know, basically said, no, 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 he's our child. We're going to take him to America. No, we, we don't agree that that's the right thing for him. We need to keep him here in, in the hospital so that he can die uh, peacefully. And they took it to court, and they lost in, in court. The court upheld the, the, the National Health Care's uh, uh, the, the National Health uh, Service's position on that. And, you know, Charlie, uh, you know, he may have died anyways, but, you know, he, he had – uh, you know, at least a chance with an experimental treatment here in the U.S., but the healthcare system said, no, we know what's best, um, and, uh, you know, uh, whatever chance he may have had at life is, is now gone. I mean, that's the sort of power you are giving to, to, to people. And as much outrage as that caused, you know, uh, you know, there's only a few Charlie guards e- each year since, you know, what he had is so rare. And, you know, it's just there is not enough, um, you know, people that are in that kind of situation just don't have enough political power to uh, to, to fight the uh, um, uh, you know, nationalized health care system when it does that. So, you know, that is really the uh, uh, um, uh, you know, that 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 is really the sort of danger that you face. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, your title really specifies you know, a lot of what's going on and, and, you know, with, you know, how, how these healthcare programs are harming patients and they're impairing physicians. I mean, in, in so many different ways, especially financially, a lot of these physicians have to go through, especially dealing with Medicare. It's not easy. Um, according to some doctors that I, that I know, and, you know, dealing with the, with these government companies, Ex- explain that a little bit though, just how it is harming and impair, you know, the patients and, and impairing the physicians. Well, I mean, it does it in a number of ways, but one of the biggest is the system of price controls that that Medicare imposes on physicians. That is, you know, if you do a a certain type of visit with a patient, they're going to pay you X amount, and, you know, the the physician has no way to adjust his prices so that – you know, it can try to reflect his meet his costs, or perhaps meet the the costs of his particular kind of patients. I had a doctor in um, in the book um, who was getting very good results with uh, diabetic patients, but um, uh, to to do that, um, he had to um, excuse me, he had to. Uh, spend usually 45 minutes to an hour with each patient the first time he met with them and maybe a half hour in each subsequent visit. 
because there was just, you know, so many things to go over diet, you know, your, your lifestyle, um, just, just, just so many things that he had to, to educate them about. And, um, the problem is that, you know, the amount that Medicare would pay him for that length of a visit was not, you know, uh, helping him meet his costs. Um, and, you know, he can't, of course, adjust his prices so that, uh, you know, it better uh, reflects, um, you know, his, uh, the, the cost he has of uh, treating the, the, those types of patients. Um, that's a real problem because, you know, a doctor who like that who is getting such good results with his diabetic patients, you know, not only should he not be struggling to, to ma- meet his costs, he should be making actually a very, very good income, you know, two hundred, three hundred, maybe $400,000. The reason being is that other young doctors would look at that salary and say, you know, hey, uh, that's a good thing to go into. Uh, how is this doctor achieving that? Oh, he's treating his diabetic patients this way. You know, it, it's sort of a model for other young doctors to help out, uh, you know, to better treat uh, 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 diabetic patients. But, you know, Medicare's price control uh, system uh, often thwarts that, uh, that uh, practicing, uh, a doctor practicing in that way. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, you know, there's a big problem with entitlement in our country. And all these people, especially in the Democratic Party, feel like health care is, is a right. In reality, it's a privilege. There, there's a reason why people pay more money so they can get better health care because they earn the money, they, they can afford it, and, that, and that's their right. It's their right as an American to pay more to have better coverage. But to just get handed health insurance, the entitlement, and for anybody to think that's a right, is disgusting. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's. Well, it's I mean, I, I, I don't. I don't think it's a right or I don't think it's a right or a privilege. It's it's a product and a service, and and uh, it, it is quite dangerous to to think that it is a right. Uh, first of all, um, you know, I, I I don't honestly believe there is a right to anything. You know, to there is really a right to anything, uh, a right to you know a product or service. Because first of all, you're saying you you are entitled to uh, somebody else's labor. You know, somebody has to pay for that health care. Somebody has to provide that health care. And when you say someone has a right to it, you are saying that I am entitled to your labor without having to compensate you uh, for that labor. Which I think at it, 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 it heart is is evil. Um, the the other um, problem with that is you know what exactly does it mean that you you have a right to? Um, and once you start down um, that path, uh, you know then it be quickly becomes a matter of. Um, you know, government rationing, and uh, you end up with, uh, you know, things like Canada and, and the U.K., where you spend a lot of time on the waiting list for, for health care. I mean, it, it, does a right to health care mean the right to wait six months to a year for treatment? Does it mean, you know, the right to of, of Charlie Gard to die peacefully instead of, you know, getting an experimental treatment? I mean, the, these systems that supposedly guarantee our right to health care, in fact, uh, end up, you know, kind of turning health, uh, end up turning health care into something of a privilege. No, yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Very well said. And, you know, uh, talk about, I wanted you to talk about your time at the, um, at the, pol- the Policy uh, Institute. You uh, were a senior fellow there. You had a pretty high position. What, what was that like? 
Uh, a lot of reading and a lot of writing. <laughs> and and if, if I may, um, would it be all right if we were to talk about the Lower Health Care Costs Act, a bill that's currently in front of the Senate, and that I I, I think probably your your, your listeners might want to uh, probably should hear about. Um, well, sure, sure. Uh, no, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, this is a bill in front of the Senate right now that could be kind of a repeat of Obamacare in the sense that people could end up losing their doctors, and by which I mean that they could find out that their doctors are not covered by their, their health plans. And what this bill is supposed to do is um, uh, it, it is it, it is supposed to help people who uh, – uh, get large unexpected medical bills after receiving emergency uh, care that is out of network. That is that their insurance companies doesn't, uh, don't cover. And basically what this bill also does is, in, is impose price controls, uh, imposes them on insurance companies. It basically forces an insurance company to pay the median price it pays for a service whenever, you know, one of their customers gets that service out of network. So for example, let's say you end up in the hospital, your doctor comes by to visit you. Uh, if that visit is not covered by the insurance company, uh, then they'll simply pay the doctor the median price that they pay for that service uh, instead of, you know, a, a, a higher price. Now, um, when you think about it, this gives insurance companies two um, perverse incentives to get rid of their higher price providers. By getting rid of their higher price doctors, well, they reduce the median price that they're going to pay for, for out-of-network uh, doctor's uh, uh, services. The second is that... Um, once they remove a higher price doctor from their network, uh, that doctor then becomes out of network. So if a patient who has that insurance company uh, goes to see that doctor, well, you know, it's out of network now. And so the insurer is going to pay that doctor the, the median price as opposed to, you know, the higher price it used to pay them. And, you know, when, uh, if this law, if this bill becomes law, uh, you are, um, you know, eventually, it's been, you know, you're going to see a lot of people, much like happened uh, during, um, you know, the implementation of Obamacare in 2014. People are going to find out that their doctors are not covered by their, by their insurance plans. Um, you know, we all remember. President Obama's promise that, you know, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And, um, of course, that, uh, that turned out to be quite the big lie. And, um, you know, we're, we're, uh, this bill threatens a, a repeat of that. Yeah. No, 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 absolutely. And please, please speak on the, you know, obviously the prescription drug uh, costs. You know, um, Trump's really taking action on that and, and making a huge difference. And, you know, I – it, it looks as if that they'll be at record lows. Um, explain, you know, what we were dealing with, obviously, for so many years with expensive drugs and how Trump is making a huge difference. Uh, I am sorry to say I am not uh, I, I, I'm not really prepared to, to talk much about that uh, that question. Um, so I'm going to have I'm afraid I'm going to have to pass on that one. Um, I, I just I. Uh, haven't uh, just haven't paid enough attention to that one to speak on it with any any sort of uh, authority. I'm afraid. Can you can you speak on the disaster of let's just say let me give you a hypothetical here. Let's just say some right. Democrat gets let's say a Democrat gets power sometime in the future. 
and they decide to go the Medicare for all, all route. Can you explain the disaster and what that would create for our entire country? Um, well, I mean, the first thing would simply be the cost and, um, it would add, you know, trillions more to, to the, to the deficit. I mean, Medicare is already underfunded to the tune of, I want to say it's 40 trillion, which is basically, you know, what the, what the country would have to invest today to pay for social security over, I'm sorry, Medicare over the next, um, 75 years. So you can imagine how much more it would cost to put the entire country under, under Medicare. Um, exactly what would happen in terms of how the, uh, how, how resources would be rationed, um, you know, it, it, it's hard to say. Um, but you can bet that uh, they will be rationed primarily on the backs of the sick because, you know, those are always the, the most expensive patients. Uh, those are the ones that are going to require the most resources, and those tend to be the patients with the – or the people with the least amount of, uh, of political power. So um, exactly, you know, whether that would mean wait times, whether that would mean, um, you know, what I suspect would happen is that, you know, uh, it would be some kind of age um, um, waiting system where people age 65 and over would get the, the, you know, the shorter waits because they tend to have more political power. Uh, and, and then, you know, people who are much younger, uh, they would end up having to wait uh, uh, much longer because, you know, they don't tend to have the same amount of political power under Medicare. Um, but nevertheless, it will eventually be sicker folks who end up losing out under, under a, a system of, of Medicare for all. And he, here's the problem is that all these people on the left especially, they, they want to try and say, well, look how great the healthcare system is in Sweden. Look how great it is in Canada. You know, they, they try to make all of these, you know, ridiculous comparisons. Can you, can you speak a little bit on that? How can you debunk that basically? And, you know, I mean, obviously they're wrong because don't, don't they tax people a lot more in these places to pay for all this public health care? Oh, they do. And, um, you know, one of the things they, they, they often point to is, uh, I mean, they don't do it as much anymore because I think the political right has kind of been calling them on it more and more. But they, you'll still see it now and then that they'll point out that life expectancy and infant mortality are tend to be lower in these countries than in the United States. Uh, well, the first thing uh, about that is neither of those uh, statistics really tell you much, if, if anything, about a, a health care system. Um, for starters, I mean, uh, life expectancy, that encompasses all deaths, uh, regardless of whether, you know, the person who has any interaction with the health care system before they die. So someone who's killed in a car accident dies immediately before the ambulance ever shows up is incorporated into that statistic. And, um, you know, that again, tells you nothing about the healthcare system, not to mention all the other factors that lead in the, the deal that affect life expectancy uh, that have nothing to do with the healthcare system, such as, uh, you know, your diet, um, you know, your work habits, um, your exercise. I mean, I mean, all those things, uh, your genetics, I mean, all those things play a role and the healthcare um, system has very little uh, 
impact on, on any of those. Uh, it, it is much the same with, with uh, infant mortality. It is also impacted by many, many factors that, are, uh, that have nothing to do with the healthcare system. And it, it, what makes life expectancy even worse as a, as a measure of a healthcare system is that uh, m- countries don't measure it the same uh, or consistently from, from country to country. You are, uh, according, I believe it's the United, yeah, the United Nations says that, to, that you're supposed to record an infant, uh, uh, infant mortality, it's infant mortality if, uh, or it's an infant death if, um, you know, the infant shows some signs of life, like it's trying to make an effort to breathe, all right? Um, right. But all sorts of countries, and, and the U.S. and the Canada are the two countries that follow that consistently, and among the first world uh, developed nations, guess which two tend to rate highest on infant mortality? Yeah, the U.S. and Canada. All the other countries basically cheat. I mean, some do not count any infant born prior to 26 weeks. Um, some do not count any infant that dies within the first 24 hours. Um, but, you know, if, if, um, uh, if you've ever been to, like, the neonatal unit of, uh, in the U.S., uh, you know that you know the U.S. is very very good at at, at getting a a a a, uh, a a premature birth and 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 you know m- uh, helping that that premature baby to uh, to survive. Um, you know, years ago I was looking at the statistics on deaths, uh, infant deaths within a 24-hour period. Uh, the, the UN manages to break. I think it was the United Nations break di- breaks down the statistics that you know within the first you know 24 hours, first you know week, and, and and so forth. And the U.S. was supposedly way behind. All the other nations had much better data on on the first 24 hour period which doesn't mean that they do a better job i mean i they almost certainly don't giving given you know how many how many just you know very high tech advanced neonatal units that we have here in the us what it means is the other countries are cheating in the way they count their statistics so um you know this notion that we get better that that uh, there are numbers out there that prove that the other nations get better health care is 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 really garbage and I'll just I'll throw in one last thought on that um, I, you know for a number of years I really looked for any any sort of uh, statistic that you could that you could be pretty confident was was something that was impacted by the healthcare system and was consistently you know measured similarly you know across nations and I never as far as I know there is none so at least in 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 that way you really can't compare the healthcare systems of of one nation to the uh, to the next no I agree no I agree with you 100 uh, percent I know my panel has some questions uh Gianni go ahead yeah uh so a question for you guys uh so I want to say this before I say this I just want to get us off the bat like I'm not in favor of socialism because socialism means the the government uh, controls the means of production. So I definitely don't agree with that. However, when it comes to health care, I am more of a social democrat, meaning uh, I love the Nordic model of the health care system. Because, you know, like over here, you know, we have K-12, we have, you know, the, it pays for our roads, you know. So we have kind of a social system that we already have, social security, things of that nature. Uh, so I <sighs> – I'm in the middle of trying to figure out which healthcare system I think is better because I do tend to like the Nordic models because the Nordic models follows things as far as like 
the region and the local governments are really controlling the healthcare. Meanwhile, like what's going on? Hello. Hey, it's a it's a noise or something in the background, Rory. I don't know. Oh yeah, that okay. might have been me. I need I'm, I needed to refill my uh, my little cup of water. My bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh no, you're you're okay. No, you're good. Um, so, um, you know, like for the Nordic models, they use you know the regional and the local government in order to control healthcare, and you know the state just really oversees it and you know legislates it and things of that nature. And it seems that healthcare has been going you know great in you know places like Sweden and places like Denmark. They're not socialist. A lot of people like to say, oh, it's socialist paradise. It's not a socialist paradise. It's actually, you know, have, has a private market because what what goes on, people say, well, if they have free health care over there in Denmark and all these things, and, you know, their tax money is paying for this, what, why isn't the lines as long as, you know, what we usually hear from conservatives like us, you know, that we say, and it's because they do have a private health care system. It's usually smaller. So what if we can use, you know, our tax money and things of that nature, you know, and do these things on a regional and local level instead of the state controlling everything, which will be socialism. But what if we have the regional and the local governments controlling health care and it provides, you know, the free health care, but we still have a private market, you know, that would allow for that, you know, on a smaller scale in private hospitals. So if you don't want to go to a local hospital because of wait time, things of that nature, you can go and say, hey, I'm going to go to the private hospital. It's a little bit smaller, but, you know, it's still a private hospital, and I can get what I need done right now. So I'm just asking mm-hmm. you, you know, what do you think about that Nordic model? Not socialism, not like every government controls everything or the production, the means of the production, but as far as like the social democrat, you know, kind of view and Nordic model view of healthcare. Yeah. Um, well, I actually looked at Sweden's healthcare system. Uh, it's been many years ago now, but they they had uh, wait times for uh, uh, for surgery as as well. Uh, you know, so did um, uh, Denmark, which I looked at uh, more recently. I mean, they have they have basically the same type of inefficiencies that you get with um, any sort of uh, a system that has that much uh, government involvement. I mean, I really only trust the the system to work, uh, you know, well for for patients. Basically, when the patients uh, control the dollars, um, I, I really don't think it's a good idea uh, for government uh, at any level, whether it's local or um, uh, state or. Uh, federal to uh, control money that really should be controlled by the patient. I mean, uh, primarily because, I mean, look, the patient is in the best position to know what he needs, what he, what he wants with regard to health care. And he has, the, the patient has the most incentive to get it right because it's the patient ultimately that pays the biggest cost for, for being wrong, whether that means, you know, the, the ultimate cost of losing your life or whether it means more pain and suffering or it means higher, higher medical bills. Um, so, you know, once you start handing that money off to, uh, to, to uh, you know, third parties uh, like the government, well, you know, they've got their own interests as well. You know, uh, politicians want to get reelected. Uh, bureaucrats want to make sure they they have their their budgets funded, and whether or not that is um, 
going to uh, to uh, jibe with you know what what patients want and need with regard to their health care uh, well uh, you know too often it doesn't and um, I am I'm not sold on the the Nordic model um, at all and um, you know I, I uh, would much prefer to see us uh, you know instead of looking at the the health care systems of other countries uh, I would prefer us to take a look at our health care system and compare it not to other countries but to other markets that don't have anywhere near is the the amount of government interference as, as we have in our own health care market you know that's where you see products and services uh, you know that that's where you see you know the consumer controlling dollar uh, products and services uh you know the the cost and and price go down and and the quality goes up uh that's that's where i would really look for what kind of model we want with our with our healthcare system right it's, uh, uh, go ahead how Johnny. would you okay yeah how would you um respond to someone you know like i'm very i'm a very compassionate guy you know someone i have had people that say hey i can't i just can't afford my healthcare you know i can't I can't afford to pay for it. And, and, and people that, you know, have K-12 school, our taxpayer dollars fund our roads, fund, you know, the public schools that we have. And it funds a lot of stuff that is good for society and the progression of society. Like, how, how would you respond? I'm not saying I'm, I'm concrete on a position here, but how would you respond? No, to I, I just can't afford it, you know. Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is, have you taken a look at the K-12 through schools, especially those in the inner city? <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, is, is, that, is, is, is that something we would necessarily want to model our health care system on? And then I might take it a step further and say, look at places like Detroit and Cleveland that have turned to some type of, uh, you know, a voucher system. I mean, parents, when the minute they get a chance to, uh, um, uh, you know, their hands on those vouchers or, or place, no, not even voucher system. I mean, look at charter schools and how many parents line up to try to get their kids into charter schools. I mean, in the, in the minute they get a chance to, to flee those um uh, 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 you know, flee those, um, uh, you know, government-run schools, they do. Um, as for not being able to afford health care, well, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, boy, there's, there's just so many ways I can I can go at that question. Let me let me just go at it this way. I mean, one of the reasons it's hard to afford, afford health care is simply because, and, and I, I – I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, so forgive me, but uh, if it seems that way, but, um, it, you know, we have so much government involvement in health care, so, which does so much to drive up the cost of health care, that hoping that government's going to be able to come in and help those people pay for health care um, is, is probably ultimately a pipe dream. Um, you know, uh, I mean... You look at the program Medicaid, which is supposed to help the poor, and sure, at times it does. Um, but you know, it, it also can be very, very difficult for for uh, people on Medicaid to uh, to find a doctor who will treat them because Medicaid, you know, has such such very uh, low rates of reimbursement. A lot of folks with Medicaid end up, um, you know, trying to seek their treatment in in emergency rooms. Um, and, you know, one reason that certain emergency rooms are are often overcrowded. So. Um, this notion that uh, um, you know the government can come in and, and make things more affordable, um, you know, just isn't isn't 
uh, just isn't so. All government really does is just shift the costs around, but it doesn't really reduce costs. If you want to reduce costs, you need to find ways to, to make markets work better, and more of that means, I think, getting money more toward the uh, you, you know in the hands of the patient. I mean, I think the Medicaid system would work better if people were able to use Medicaid in some type of voucher system, kind of like you know we're seeing in certain in certain areas, uh, you know, with with, uh, with our our public education system. Uh, Kevin, go ahead. Great to talk to you, sir. And um, yeah, I think we could all agree in a sense that this healthcare system is is a mess and, and getting messier by the day. And it's not necessarily always a political reason. It's simply, you would say a house of cards just building up all this weight that is eventually going to collapse because of all these socialistic type, uh, you know, these welfare programs that are just absolutely weighing down our healthcare system. And of course the hospitals and it's, uh, it's, it's creating a lot of debt on not only our government, but the consumer itself. I mean, we love to talk about how uh, we want a capitalistic system, which is very, you know, well to do. Um, but the problem is of course, is that uh, there, there is a great uh, welfare state taking place, and um, moreover, you have these illegal aliens who are going into, say, the ER room. Uh, they can have a cold, a hurt knee, or you know what have you, and you know they'll be treated for free, doctor's oath. Um, and this this cost is now given to the you know the actual paying consumer. I mean, we have these prices that are inflating tremendously, um, and uh, it's obviously not fair that. Uh, these prices should be so high for absolute basic treatment. So, you know, I totally am empathetic with what Johnny's been saying because it's ridiculous that we essentially have people that shouldn't even be in our country getting treated for what have you um, for free, and we have our own citizens that are being treated like dirt. And so at the very least, I believe that we should have some sort of basic health care. It just doesn't have to be anything special, but you know, just to get some, some treatment, I, I would think. And um, it, I wouldn't even say it's, it's socialistic because it would be very localized, like, you know, almost clinic-based. And uh, a lot of, um, you know, incentive programs could go into it. But essentially what I'd like to ask is, you know, what do you believe is any way out of uh, fixing this, this problem? And I think what's also part of the problem is that we have these uh, patents that absolutely, like, absolutely gouge our prices up. It, you know, the, the prices for a lot of these healthcare machines and products and medicines and et cetera, shouldn't be nearly as high as they are, but you have essentially these patents that are, you know, uh, you know, uh, cutting off the market with red tape, et cetera. Um, I really think that it's really out of control and something needs to be, be done about it. I know Trump's been doing a lot of that uh, right to try and uh, other programs that's been helpful, but um, you know, what more could be done about this? Um, well, a couple of things. I mean, uh, I, with regard to, you know, giving everyone basic health care, um, y- you mentioned, you know, um, uh, illegal immigrants getting their, their health care for free. Um, if you give everyone basic health care, you're basically doing the exact same thing for everyone now that uh, you're doing for illegal immigrants. Um, exactly. If they get their health care for free and that cost is pushed off on everyone else, and now you're uh, you know, letting everyone basically get health care for free, 
what do you think that's going to do to to the long run cost? I mean, there, n- nothing in, in life is free. I mean, you hand people uh, a free benefit like you do to say illegal immigrants or people who you know just walk into the Medicaid uh, uh, room. All that does is the cost has to be pushed off onto somebody else, whether it's private payers or whether it's you know government uh, 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 the taxpayers. I mean, nothing nothing is free. Uh, the question is, you know, what system does the best at reducing costs and and um, um, improving quality? And and time and time again, it is it is a uh, it is a market system. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems in our healthcare system um, is that we have this tax exclusion for people who get their health insurance uh, through their employer. Uh, health insurance in, in that uh, situation is tax free, uh, so. Um, employ, employees have uh, incentive to put more of their compensation into uh, health insurance rather than, uh, you know, their wages. And um, as a result, they, you know, we tend to buy more and more expensive uh, health insurance plans, ones that cover, you know, not only the, the, the big expenses, which is what, you know, insurance is supposed to be for, but also comes with you know more bells and whistles and and covers you know uh, uh, you know large amounts of primary care things that we should be paying for directly uh, out of pocket. Uh, if we were to do that, if we were to pay for it more uh, out of pocket, um, you know prices would go down. Um, and so how do we get there? Um, you know I, I really uh, you know there's no real easy answer to that. Um, uh, because you know it, it involves you know a lot of very big change and and uh, as bad as the system might be, once you're talking about very large change that's going to impact a lot of people, uh, it's going to you know you're going to end up creating a lot of backlash and protests and and so forth. Um, what I would suggest um, is something that 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 sort of gets the camels, the free market camel, uh, his tent, uh, his sorry, his tent, his nose under the tent. Um, what I would do is uh, you know, propose something that would allow small businesses to offer their their employees large health savings accounts. That is money that is tax free but is limited. That is, you can you know set aside a couple thousand dollars each year and that's it. And um, you could use that money then to pay for health insurance or pay for health care directly. Why small business? Number one is small businesses are now having a harder time providing health insurance for their employees, uh, but they could provide, you know, uh, uh, you know, a large health savings account. They could provide, you know, maybe partially fund it, fund it fully, whatever. That's something that they, they could more uh, easily afford. And second, uh, you know, something that, uh, that you know, uh, the proposal legislation at the federal level that would do that would be something fairly small uh, it would not create uh, as, uh, a big backlash as, as they did the repeal of the attempted repeal of Obamacare at the beginning of, of the Trump administration um, it's something that you get past and you sort of like I said get the camel's nose under the tent well you know people start thinking well small business people have this thing and uh, these large health savings accounts, why can't large employers have it? Why can't individuals have it? And then you're off to the races and then you've got something that that's going to, uh, you know, generate uh, a lot more market pressure on, on the cost of, uh, uh, on the cost of healthcare. All right. Thank you for your response. 
Very well said. Um, sir, please, please um, tell everybody where they can connect with you and find your book and all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, the book Medicare's Victims is still available on Amazon. Um, and uh, for people to contact me, really the best way is you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at doc, D-O-C underscore hog. And, um, yeah, uh, just follow me there. I post on politics and, and other things. And, uh, uh, yeah, um, that's really the best way. All right. I really appreciate having you on. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Uh, We will be right back, everybody, with W. Kirk Bell. Um, And I do want to let everybody know, uh, business mogul and celebrity um, Jeffrey Hazlett has rescheduled for early next week. He'll he'll be on the show. He um, sent me a message, and his flight to Houston uh, got delayed. So, he is uh, still, uh, you know, he's still on the plane. But we will get him on either Monday or Tuesday is what we're planning. So uh, sorry about that, though. But everybody, stay with us. We'll be right back. Is video a part of your strategy for 2019? Hi, I'm Rob Hicks with Hicks Video, your remote video production specialist. Using equipment you already own, I help you deliver high-value videos to your audience. From interviews and demonstrations to online meetings and trainings, I work with you to shape your stories and subjects that demonstrate your subject matter expertise. If you're a product specialist, sales executive, or business owner, we make video production simple and affordable. We do this so that you can make videos on a regular basis, whether it's daily, weekly, or monthly to communicate about the topics and discussions that are important to you, your audience, and your business. To make your videos, we use HD video conferencing that allows you and your guests to connect to our studio from your home or office using your laptop, phone, or tablet. Once you and your guests have connected to our studio, we do all the rest. We take care of the TV graphics, the intro videos, the outro videos, the music, the behind the scenes production, everything that it takes to either live stream or locally record your video for post-production editing to social media, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, you name it. If you're tired of seeing the empty balloon commercials that are being made by your competition's social media experts, give me a call. I work directly with you, the subject matter expert, to help shape your story and ideas in a professional and polished manner via video. If you're ready to take a deep dive on your expertise and showcase the essence of your business via video, give me a call or connect with me online. I'm Rob Hicks with Hicks Video, the remote video production specialist, the doer's resource for online video production. Would you know what to do in the event of an active shooter, a terrorist attack, or an unforeseen altercation? Whether at home or in the workplace, SkyRace Security can train you and your employees how to defuse a potential violent situation. Our goal at SkyRace Security is to keep our clients safe. With our professional and experienced Israeli Defense Force trainers, we teach strategies for safety that may someday save lives. Sign up at SkyRaysSecurity.com for our workplace violence prevention and training classes or call 240-888-0682. Hello, everybody. This is Rory Sodder from The Rory Sodder Show. Are you an aspiring entrepreneur? Do you have an app idea? Do you want to save money? 
Well, I got great news for you. My company, GetYourAppBuilt.com, charges a fraction of the cost compared to anywhere else. And all of our work is the same amount of professionalism you'd see from any other company. Uh, please visit our website, GetYourAppBuilt.com, for your free consultation and contact us today. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Rory Sodder from The Rory Sodder Show. Please visit TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com for all your authentic, customized, and creative President Trump apparel and merchandise. You won't find products like this anywhere else. And best part of all, it's made here right in the USA. Use Mega45 at checkout for 30% off your first purchase. Again, visit TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com today for a wide variety of great selections. Thank you. And we are back worldwide, coast to coast, listened to in 25 different countries, on nearly 70 online platforms. And everybody, if you miss me past clips, past episodes, or need 24-7 breaking news coverage, visit my media site, the next, N-E-X, Gen, G-E-N, USA.com. Also remember, next month I will be releasing the new 24-7 network. Like I said, many big names, notable names, doing their own shows. And my good friend, America's Toughest Sheriff, Joe Arpaio, and my good friend, Robert Spencer, from the director of Jihad Watch, those two guys will be the main faces of the network. So, very excited. I was just at Arpaio's office yesterday. I was with him for like three hours, and we talked, and he's very excited to be the, the face of this of this new big network that we're, we're releasing. So, I will keep you all posted with more announcements. I uh, do want to... Um, introduce again, obviously. I mean, introduce him at the beginning of the show, but Director of Communications for Trump's campaign in North Carolina, lobbyist and D.C. insider, W. Kirk Bell. How are you, my friend? Hey, Rory, how are you doing? Glad to talk to you. Absolutely. Got, got so many questions for you, but first of all, Kirk, tell everybody about yourself. Well, my background is um, I'm a proud uh, graduate of the University of Alabama, uh, born and raised in North Carolina, went to Alabama, Roll Tide, for all those Tide fans out there. Um, knew immediately in college when I worked on a campaign uh, in school that I wanted to go into politics, so I moved to Washington right after school and yeah. just started kicking around trying to find jobs. Uh, basically doing what most people do. You start out volunteering and then work your way up to the hill at some point. So I ended up in 1985 starting on the hill as an intern. Uh, I worked for six members of Congress, uh, was chief of staff for Pete Sessions, um, uh, good members throughout the years, uh, Ron Packard from Southern California, great guy, Tommy Robinson from Arkansas, Mel Hancock from Missouri, Howard Coble from North Carolina. So um, got to see a lot of the country. Um, and then from there, I made the decision to join the Trump campaign. And uh, I, I actually started talking with him in March of 16, but officially joined with caucus operations in Cleveland in uh, late May, early June of 16, and helped do radio and TV media for the convention in, in Cleveland. From there, I was assigned to North Carolina's Director of Communications for the entire state. I did all media and press um, and uh, digital 
communications for the state. And from that point on, I received, after the victory, I received a presidential appointment for uh, DOT as White House liaison, and I kicked around the administration for about 14, 15 months. Now I'm doing um, strategic communications. Uh, I'm a consultant with a small little boutique company called Greener and Hook in D.C., and I am not a lobbyist, so I'll also say that, like Dr. Hogberg. Um, I've never been a lobbyist, so that's, that's but, it. In you, a but you, you're a political consultant, though. Correct, yes. Yeah, so I just, I just give strategy ideas and uh, some digital work, some uh, video work, just a, a, a bunch of different things that we offer. So tell us about your time at the White House. Well, okay, so um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was, uh, and this actually goes back a little bit deeper. So, as I said before, I've been on and off the Hill since 1985. So I've had a kind of a unique perspective to see, um, you know, the House representatives, staffers, members, through a period of time from the Reagan administration all the way till the uh, uh, Trump administration. And one thing I wanted to talk about was, which I mentioned to you privately, is the fact that I was shocked at the time I decided to go work for the Trump campaign. I was shocked with the number of people who were Republicans, but they were establishment, but they were leadership, who came to me and said it would be the worst mistake you ever made for your career if you were to go work for candidate Trump. I heard this repeatedly from folks in D.C., and I was kind of shocked by that because I thought, well, aren't we all on the same team? Aren't we pulling for the same ideas? And in fact, in my history, legislative history on the Hill, a lot of the things that candidate Trump was working towards were things that we had voted for on the House floor. Um, as we moved into the campaign and into Cleveland, I found that the establishment Republicans were so obstructionist to us at that period that, that it almost was disbelievable. I mean, it, it was shocking to me how, how much they tried to um, do everything they could to make sure that, that candidate Trump uh, didn't win enough votes in platform committee and rules committee, uh, and then on the floor with the delegates, they they were hoping that, that it would be a contested convention. I guess you, you know you, it's not really a brokered convention; they call it contested. I have it on good authority that there was a plan that would have brought Paul Ryan in as the nominee in the in the event that the Cruz folks and others were able to thwart candidate Trump's election by the delegates or, or official nomination by the delegates. Then he wins the race. Oh, actually, during, during the race, uh, when I was assigned to North Carolina, once again, the establishment GOP sat on their hands, didn't turn out for phone banks, didn't turn out for door knocking. And, and it was, it was, very shocking as to the, the fact that they just were determined they were not going to put much effort out to try to help this candidate because they were convinced 
he was going to lose, and also because they they didn't believe in his message of change. Um, then once I got into the administration, the um, <laughs> you know the, the establishment again, they they are determined to try to stop him to this day from getting things done. And, and the resistance is a very, very real thing out there. And, and it's when you're talking about department and agencies, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of, of career folks, most of whom are very good people and, and hard workers, but a, a, a quite a big number also on the side who will do everything they can to sabotage this president. And it is a real thing. It is a daily thing, and it still exists. And so I just and, – and a lot of those folks are Republicans, and that's, that's the thing that really, really drives me crazy. So I, I just wanted to get that out there, that the resistance is real, never Trumpers are real, and the establishment still wants to do everything they can to stop him from getting anything done. And obviously you've spent a lot of time there, so you know how these swamp creatures work. You've been around the corruption, right? I mean you've seen it firsthand. Well, I was a swamp creature, quite frankly, and, and but I I had an epiphany at one point that that there's nothing nothing was ever going to change because it didn't benefit anybody in Washington for it to change. And I noticed in the sixteen cycle that all of a sudden now we've got a candidate who is out there determined Stop the status quo, and I expected, fully expected, the other side of the aisle—Democrats, uh, liberals, left, leftists—to to fight candidate Trump. That's fully to be expected. What I didn't realize or didn't expect was how much pushback we would get from our own people on 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 a day-to-day basis. And then once he was elected, how much more of these people would continue to push back. And it, it's eased up a little bit now because luckily in, in our system, the, the uh, incumbent president has the ability to take the reins in a lot of different areas like fundraising and the RNC. So you know, slowly but surely members are coming around. But, but when I sat there on, on the policy side – as a legislative assistant for members and watched Republicans in the House vote 37 sometimes and, and Senate Republicans vote for to repeal Obamacare so many times. And knowing full well that while Barack Obama was president, that, that there was no chance that that repeal would ever pass or, or would ever be signed. Yet, when we have a Republican president and a president whose first order of business is to repeal and replace Obamacare, and those same senators and a lot of House members couldn't bring themselves to do what they had done, you know, 30 some times. And that just makes you realize how fake and phony they are. Yeah, and, you know, it's. How many – let me ask you this. How many percentage 
of the Republicans in Washington do you think ha- actually have tr- Trump's best interest at heart? <laughs> that's that's probably I'd say if I had to think about it, I'd say it's divided into thirds. All right, so a third of the folks are are actually you know full on gung ho for the president and ready to go. Then the second third, um, those folks are just opportunists, and those are the folks that never liked him, didn't didn't like him at all. But now that he's been elected president. They'll step in and try to take credit for everything, say they were there the whole time. I mean, when, when I left to go on the campaign, my phone stopped ringing. The day after the election, my phone rang off the hook with people who, you know, who I hadn't heard from in, in five or six months. All of a sudden, were, yeah, I was with you the whole time. And, yeah, you know, we, we were pulling for you. And, and, you know, here's my resume. And and so I'd say about a third fully support, a, a third are opportunists, and then the the final third just don't like him under any circumstance. And, and you you know you hung around the president obviously right because you were his you were in charge of his Correct, campaign yeah. in North North Carolina. What's it like hanging around with him? It must be like surreal, just like unbelievable, right? Well, the the thing that I found um, is. You know, all all the the way the media portrayed him as as a person, and and the the things that you would hear, and and I kind of had an, uh, a picture in my mind of when I first met him, what that picture was going to be, and and he ent- turned out to be entirely different. And in fact, I, I my conversations were, I, I found him to be very humorous, very very, just awesome to be around. And and not anything like he's portrayed. I mean, he's just a great guy, and you know he's he's tough when he needs to be tough, but he's fair when he when when it comes down to it. And I think, I mean, that's that's what sold me. And he's just he's just the right guy for the job. And you know that's that's the best way that I can put it. And and that's why we've got to reelect him in 2020. I mean, he is the right yeah. man for the time. And speaking of North Carolina, there was just a poll that came out today. And North Carolina, for anybody that isn't aware, most people that follow politics are, that North Carolina is a very pivotal swing state. And uh, Donald Trump is leading in North Carolina as of now, which is a really good sign. And he's leading, you know, comf- in a comfortable, I- I'd say, like five or six points, you know, comfortable in, in a sense. But what do you, what are your what are your thoughts, uh, Kirk, in terms of? Um, well, I'll tell you. His, so, so yes. When when we um, when I landed from Cleveland down here, we our internal polling had us up by four, and we stayed on that line. Of course, there was a Billy Bush problem that came up, and then you know every, everybody's <laughs> every state's polls dropped uh, significantly for yeah. a period of time. But within, and I think North Carolina came out of it the last of, of most of the states. Um, but we immediately then went back to four plus four. So we stayed at pretty much the, the whole time plus four, and ended up winning in in uh, uh, the race by three point eight. So those we felt those polls were extremely accurate. Uh, the one thing I say about right now, I, I think that's probably. He's extremely popular in the state of North Carolina. The economy is very good uh, in North Carolina. 
And, and you're having the convention have, just having, did, having did, done did, a number of, of presidential campaigns in the past. Um, yeah. uh, my one caveat with that is there's just so, so much time between now and, and the election. So we, we have to be, right. we can't take anything for granted. We, we have to play the game as if, we're the underdog, and I think truly we are the underdog because the other side controls the media. They right. control the internet, the internet, and that's scary. The, the 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 internet scares me. And I had I had experience in 2016 where, mm-hmm. and I've talked to Brad Parscale about it, and and he said, well, you know, maybe maybe not. So he's he's a little skeptical of it. But I'll give you um, the, the, the gist of the story is that I was doing a event for um, Mike Pence, and he came to Raleigh. And I remember thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I would open up Periscope on Twitter and I could broadcast it out, put a lead on it, broadcast it out. And I'm just going to do this to see what kind of um, response I get from from folks. And I it went off the charts. I had about 33, 3,200, 33, 3,400 people tune in, all kinds of you know thumbs up and hearts and all kinds of great comments, and it it worked magically. And I thought this would be a great tool to use for every rally from that point on, whether it was DJT, which was Trump, or. Mm-hmm whether it was uh, Mike Pence. And so from that point on, two or three days later, Pence came to Charlotte. And so I did the same thing, open it up. Twelve people came online. And I thought, well, that's weird. How do you go from 3,300 to 12? So then, then I did it again for a DJT rally, and I was right in front of the podium, opened it up, same same process as I did before, opened it through Twitter with Periscope, and nothing. I, I got maybe 15, 20 people looking at it. I, I'm just, there is absolutely no way you go from two, those extremes. And it, it from the, that point on, I never was able to get more than about 20 or 25 people to, to – um, watch any of the videos of that Periscope that I was doing. So I personally believe, I'm not an expert in IT, but I personally believe that that was an example of shadow banning. And um, and and what ha- whatever happened in 16 or whatever's happening now, I can pretty much bet it's going to be 10 times worse um, in, the, in the coming uh, election cycle because they, they control it. They, I wouldn't put it past, just as they did with uh, uh, Senator McConnell, Leader McConnell, I wouldn't put it past Twitter to uh, take the president down. I, I, I fully believe that at some point that they, they will make the case and they will try to do that. I know it would be hard to do, and it's probably not, that's probably not realistic, but I think some way that, that they, they will try their best to limit his, his um uh, Twitter account. So. Yeah, well, you know, big tech is just dangerous in general. And I wanted to ask you, obviously, you know, we really have to monitor the whole tech, the Google, the Twitter, you know, come 2020. 
But I wanted to ask you, obviously, um, the, the convention is in Charlotte, the Republican convention. Are you, you're obviously probably going to be heavily involved with that, right? Uh, I, I hope. I, I, ser- I serve at the behest of the um, president and the RNC folks, so hopefully I will, I will get that gig. Um, I, as, at, to, to this, at this point, I don't have anything uh, booked. But um, I'm, I'm hoping to, to uh, be there. I'll, I mean, I'll probably be there anyway because it is my home state, so um, in some capacity. But I'd, I'd like to be back. I'd love to go back with caucus operations, uh, which is typically the the campaign arm of the convention. So you have two different groups. You have Committee on Arrangements, and that's the RNC, and that's the bigger organization. And then you have caucus operations. Caucus operations is a smaller campaign arm folks and so uh the, the caucus ops usually kind of takes over things convention week and and try to run things from there so um we'll right see what happens right i i'd love to be a part of it yeah and I, I wanted to ask you as well tell tell everybody about your millennium challenge corporation so millennium challenge corporation was started in the early 2000s by uh condoleezza rice president bush um and uh and the idea with that was to, instead of other foreign aid agencies that were in operation at the time, which had become bulky and um, not very accountable, so USAID and, and, and other programs were not um, functioning properly, and in fact, there, there was such a bureaucracy where uh, a lot of money was going to countries who basically hated the U.S., um, yet the, the structure was such that it was kind of hard with Congress being what it is to actually change the, those organizations. So um, President Bush and, and uh, Condi Rice got together, came up with the idea of doing a foreign aid agency, which modeled a corporation. So it is it is a government agency. However, it operates off of the same principles as a corporation. And so it, it's very there the accountability there and it's it's just a great, great overall group of people. Um, it was originally the idea was to fund it at about the three billion dollar mark. I don't think it's ever been close to that. I, I believe it's probably the most it's ever been funded was uh, a billion. Now I will say, again, I'm I'm not the biggest proponent of foreign aid, and and if we do foreign aid, I think there has to be a lot of structure to it and a and a lot of. Um, uh, you know, you got to put a lot of leashes on a lot of a lot of dogs, and and this MCC does that. They they're very they they invest in um, project. They're very project based within countries, and and they they measure every country, um, you know, as to what what that country really stands for. You know, is is it very um, pro democracy is it uh, very transparent are the governments you know gover- only governments that that really are 
modeling themselves after the United States qualified. So, um, you know, dictatorships, things like that, they, they're, or socialist kind of country, they just don't, they, they don't meet the criteria. So um, right. it's a great little, it's a great organization. Yeah, no, no, sound, sounds fantastic. And, I, and I, we do only have a few minutes left, but I want to ask you, you know, what do you, what do you make of the current co- political climate? I mean, we have, we have all this hostility from the left in every single way. I mean, we, we're looking at what happened this past week with two shootings at ICE facilities. I mean, we have, we have angry, host- hostile, aggressive, violent people shooting up our ICE offices from the left. I mean, we have people on the left giving out Trump donors' addresses and business information. We're seeing what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, more than likely it was somebody from the left that killed him, most likely somebody involved with the Clintons. I mean, we're seeing all this bad stuff and these communism and this terrible, these terrible tactics taking over. You know, the Medicare for all stance, the illegal alien coddling, the, you know, slavery reparations. I mean, what do you make of all this? I, I don't I don't like being a Cassandra. I'm more of a Pollyanna, but um, I mean I, I don't know how you cannot help but be a kind of a, a chicken little Cassandra in this, these type of instances. I mean there are two you know two diverse political thoughts in this country. I mean and it's us and them. And I I don't know you know. At some point, I think there was a period about six months ago where I thought this thing is going to – it's like a tinderbox, and it's just going to explode. And and I hope not, and, and I hope that that's not the case. But you've got – you know, I know our side, we're hell-bent on, on do, trying to do what we believe is the right thing and change government and and make this country more free and, and stop – you know, over-regulating businesses and do a lot of things that are so diametrically opposed to folks like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and, and almost to the point where you're starting to see violent outbreaks, um, the Antifa problem, you know, I, I, I don't think the white nationalist problem is is, is as big a group as 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 the media the says it is. Say. I mean, they're there. They're they're there. They're out there. I don't. I don't. Right. I've never seen them. I don't. Yeah. I mean, you know. But you certainly do see Antifa. So you you've got two two groups who are headed like trains on a track, heading yeah. towards each other. And and I hope that saner minds and saner souls will, um, you know, keep that from running off the rails. No, I hear you. No, absolutely. And um, we are, we are just about out of time. Um, But please, I really appreciate having you and we're definitely going to have you back soon. Uh, Please tell everybody where they can connect with you. Um, Really the best thing is, is um, uh, on my Facebook page, W. Kirk Bell. Uh, Look me up. I'm, uh, um, Love, love to have you on there. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, W. Kirk Bell. And um, anyway, uh, I don't I don't do a whole lot on Twitter. After my experience in 16, I'm I'm not the biggest fan, but um, occasionally okay. I'll reach 
something or send something out. But um, uh, anyway, love or Instagram, same thing, W. Kirk Bell. All righty. Sounds like a plan. Well, we really appreciate you, and we'll definitely have you back soon. Bye, Rory. Rory and Rory. That's your, that's your new nickname, Rory and Rory. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. All right. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Have a great night. God bless. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, Gianni, go ahead. Tell everybody where they can connect with you. Uh, you can connect with me on Facebook. You can Gianni Rodriguez with the Z. Again, that's Rodriguez with the Z dash Paris, two R's. Perfect, my friend. Perfect. Uh, Kevin, go ahead. Yes, you can find me on social media at Nationalist United or NationalistUnited.com. I'll be missing you. See you Monday. All righty, my friend. We'll see you Monday. been a fantastic show tonight. Uh, everything you could want in a show. So many things addressed. So many things established. Perfect flow. Great rhythm. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we never run out of things to talk about. And we resonate so well with one another. I want to thank all my audience, my guests, my co-hosts, and sponsors. Um, you are all incredible. And uh, we have a lot to look forward to with the future of this program. A lot of big plans, a lot of big plans. Um, just a few quick announcements. You know, it's, it's really going to be interesting to see how this social justice BS plays out with the NFL. Because, like I said earlier, they're going to continue kneeling is what they're making it sound like. Jay-Z is enabling the protests. He said he wants more of them. And he just made that huge financial transaction. I mean, what, what is, is the NFL trying to re- – I mean, they've already – you know, they've already um, – you know, they've already sunk with ratings to – to like, thir- like, they've lost 30% of their fans. Do they want to lose more? I mean, they're going down a very dangerous road. And it's – the narrative that is, like I said earlier, that is fed by the mainstream media – it is sick. It's sick stuff that we're dealing with at this point. Because a lot of it's make-believe. A lot of, like I said, the media loves to raise bait, and they love to divide. It's sick, sick stuff. Jerry Nadler today subpoenaed Corey Lewandowski. So that's going to be interesting. You know, these Democrats are on this never-ending witch hunt. They never end. They just keep going and going. And, and you know what? They're doing nothing for their constituents. They're just abusing their power and acting reckless. It's, it's sick. President Trump had a great rally today in New Hampshire. Uh, great speech, as always. It was fantastic. Uh, let's see here. Just a few more announcements. CNN. CNN. The people at CNN are embarrassed by Chris Cuomo. New report out came, came out today. They are embarrassed, and they, some of them are disgusted that he would even compare the N-word to Fredo. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And this whole Jeffrey Epstein thing, everybody, is awfully weird. You know, the guards apparently fell asleep and forged records before his death. You know, they also, the autopsy shows broken bones. There was screaming coming from his cell the morning he died. I mean, this is clearly something's really wrong. Like I said earlier in the week, He's either murdered 
or he's in the witness protection program and he faked his death and they got him out of here to a nice island somewhere. We are dealing with so much corruption in our government and them, them constantly lying to us. It needs to stop, and we need to get it under control. And uh, I'm glad President Trump has taken action on this Epstein situation because, you know, this isn't something that we should be lied to on. We should be able to know the truth. And I don't, I don't know if we ever will, but I hope. We'll talk, obviously, more about the Epstein details next week. Uh, I will miss you all. But uh, I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. I'm Rory Sauter. Mega, mega, mega. God bless everybody. Much love. Cheers.